The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you will hear from the journalists Peter Snow and Anne McMillan, who are the co-authors of a new book, Treasures of World History, The Story of Civilization in 50 Documents. The husband and wife team caught up with our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning, a little while back, to discuss some of the remarkable items and documents featured in the book. So your new book, Treasures of World History, reproduces 50 incredible artefacts and documents that tell us the story of civilization. Um, it's a broad sweep across 4,000 years of history and all five continents. Um, so firstly, what was the thinking behind this book? Why did you want to produce it? Well, we just got an incredible feeling that the one thing missing in the world was a good textual and illustrated volume that would tell people what the really huge monuments to human endeavour and achievement are. Uh, and, these, and these are documents. The other thing about documents, they are actually, they're alive, they're there. They really are living memories of great events in history. So we just wanted to do that. And we had great fun, of course. <laughs> I mean, we collected about 200 documents first. We had great arguments. I mean, <laughs> Anne won most of the arguments. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, how difficult was it narrowing it down from, you said you had 200 artifacts um, and documents originally. How difficult was it to, to narrow it down to 50? Well, we tried to cover a number of different um, aspects. We wanted to be geographically, we wanted it to cover the world. We also wanted to cover the arts and politics and um, uh, women's liberation and all sorts of different subjects, science. So we it, it, it became pretty clear early on which were the great documents in each of these particular disciplines. And we wanted to spread it around the world. I mean, the great we've got actually about half the documents that we've chosen are European, mm -hmm. and the other half are, 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 are from the rest of the world, right the way from New Zealand across Asia, China, India, to America and Canada. So we've, we've got a good spread. They are world treasures. And in your introduction, you point out um, that many of these documents, if not all of them, have, have changed the world in some way. Perhaps could you both give us one example of an item or document that, that has changed the world significantly? What's the perhaps most notable example of this for you, for you both? I would say probably the most important document is perhaps the Declaration of Independence, the US Declaration of Independence, which was... Uh, an extraordinary moment in history when a few colonies, and we all thought, well, you know, how tiresome they are, um, these chaps over in America complaining about the tea tax, um, they declared that they were going to go independent. Of course, they created the most extraordinary country, which has become the most dominant, the most uh, pr prominent country in the world. Um, and I think that was probably the biggest uh, landmark moment when history changed. I go, I go on to lots of other ones I could mention, but Anne, come on. Well, I, I was very fond, as you might expect, of the New Zealand suffrage petition of 1893. Now, this was when New Zealand, like many other countries in Western Europe and Britain, of course, and um, in North America, were, were, women were trying to make a point that they deserved to have the vote. And in New Zealand, it, it was a particularly active group. And... I just love the sort of details of this. For example, had it not been for the invention of the female bicycle in the mid-1800s, <laughs> this, this petition would never have happened because it, the, the fact that women were able to ride a bicycle that was comfortable meant that women in New Zealand, um, suffragettes, could bicycle all over the countryside gathering uh, uh, signatures on this enormous petition. In all, they had something like 32,000 women sign this petition. If you look at the, the petition itself, which is huge, it's 885 feet long. It's lots of pages, four, 546 pages all joined together with all these signatures on. And some of them are terribly well-written, sort of very intellectual women. And then you just have exes from people who were not able to write. Anyway, the um, New Zealand government was divided into two houses and the lower house passed this, um, this bill saying that women should have the vote in uh, 1893. And during the debate, this huge petition was rolled out on the on the on the floor of the Parliament building. But then it went to the upper house of the New Zealand Parliament, which was a lot more conservative. And there was a huge fight, and it, it, there's uh, it became known as the Battle of the Buttonholes because the men, all of them were men, obviously in Parliament, uh, who supported the suffrage bill, wore white camellias, and the opponents wore red camellias and there was an enormous fight and eventually it, it just passed by two votes and so women got the vote and then 10 weeks later there was an election in New Zealand and something like 80% of the eligible women, women over 21, voted 
And the, the newspapers had predicted terrible trouble with drunken louts attacking these women who were going to the polling booths. But in fact, one newspaper said it resembled a gay garden party with pretty dresses of the ladies and their smiling faces lighting up the polling booths. And of course, New Zealand became the first self-governing country to give women the vote. British women had to wait 35 years before they were allowed to vote. American women had to wait 25 years. So it, I, I thought that was a really important document. Of course, of course. Um, and many of the items featured in the book were discovered as well by complete chance. So we've got we've got like the suffrage bills and the Declaration of Independence, which were ended up being legislation and things. But some of the documents were, were discovered by chance. So for example, the Rosetta Stone, someone just simply came across it and thought, oh, this looks important. Um, what perhaps is the best example of this? I, I think I think one has to mention the greatest archaeological discovery of all time, which is uh, the Tutankhamun, 1922, when Howard Carter went to that tomb and he looked through this little chink of, chink of uh, light from the... Uh, the poked his torch through a hole in the tomb, in Tutankhamun's tomb, and he saw inside the most extraordinary treasure house of, of things that have never been seen before, as you say. And one of them was this extraordinary chalice, this lovely little cup, on which was inscribed this, this little message uh, to Tutankhamun from, um, from the people who designed the, the chalice. And it was actually a lovely little message which said that, you know, he had, they hoped, uh, the, the artist hoped that he would have happiness for millions of years in the new in the new life that he's about to engage on and that's that's you know that's three and a half thousand years ago it's the most wonderful document that it, oh, sorry it's a it's a, it's a it's writing on a cup i think that's lovely but there are lots of other examples you mentioned the rosetta stone there are hundreds of other documents like that well there's hammurabi's code which yes. I'm, I'm fascinated by it's the very earliest document <clears throat> in our book four thousand years old and it was a wonderful stele, a big black rock upon which were written um, 282 laws um, dictated by King Hammurabi, who was a Babylonian uh, uh, warrior. And it was it disappeared. And nobody had seen it for centuries. And suddenly French archaeologists were digging in uh, Iran and they discovered in 1901, three broken stones with funny writing all over it. And it turned out that this was Hammurabi's code. And the code is really interesting because the, there are lots of laws that have to do with property and business and family. But the code also lists lots of punishments. And one of them is, for example, if a son hit his father, the son's hand would be cut off. And then there's also um, incest between a mother and son leads to both being burnt to death However, a father who commits incest is simply banished from the country. Also, another great thing about this is that it's the first um, sign that uh, law that, that um, people could people were innocent until proved guilty. Uh, Hammurabi insisted that when somebody was charged with a crime, people came and bore witness, and then somebody decided whether or not that person was guilty. So fascinating. And that's nearly 4,000 years ago. And I mean, you know, lots of other documents are like that. I mean, you know, one, one um, obvious example is the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, the incredible stuff that they dug out of a cave. And by sheer chance, this shepherd goes into a cave and says, hey, what's that? <laughs> and it's, it's these incredible pieces of history stuck away in pots in this, in this cave in the, by, the, by the Dead Sea. And a more modern example is Anne Frank's diary, because as you know, she, when she and her family went into hiding 
in Amsterdam in 1942, she kept a very detailed diary of what it was like living in this very enclosed space hidden away. And when the Gestapo raided their um, hiding place in 1944, they they took all valuables. They, they took all the Frank's furniture or anything valuable, but they left Anne's diary and papers that she'd been writing on scattered all over the floor. And someone who'd been looking after the Franks and protecting them, went to the apartment after the raid and found these papers lying all over the floor. Anne Frank and her sister and her mother all died in concentration camp, but her father survived. And when he got back to Amsterdam, this wonderful woman who had saved the papers came and gave them to him. And uh, the rest is history. A wonderful example, I think, of documents that could have been lost uh, is the, the Book of Kells. I mean, there were these chaps, these monks on the island of Iona, 800 AD, 1,200 years ago, and they were uh, they were copying the Gospels onto this wonderful uh, uh, manuscript of the Book of Kells itself. And uh, along came the Danes, and they started wrecking everything left, right, and center. And so the, a few of these monks grabbed the book, jumped into a boat, and whipped across to Ireland. And mercifully, this thing was then hidden away in the, in the Kells Abbey for, you know, 1,000 years. And uh, it's popped up now in the Trinity College Library. We had to see it in the Trinity College Library in Dublin. It's fascinating and beautifully done. I mean, one could talk about it for ages. But uh, the lovely thing about this book is the illustrations. I mean, the pictures of all these documents uh, and pictures of the associated stories about the documents. There's one little picture of, the, of the, one of the pages of the Book of Kells with, with uh, Jesus's mother, Mary, sitting there in a chair. <laughs> I mean, the humor of these monks, that the baby Jesus looks like an old man. And, and the theory is that the, that the monks, these artistic monks who were scribbling these things, well, not scribbling, uh, writing it beautifully and, and, art and, and drawing it beautifully, is that the, one of the monks thought, he, that, um, I'm going to use old brother Jeffrey or someone to be my model for the, for the baby Jesus and so on. It's, it's, it's fascinating, all these little stories. I love that. Um, so some of the documents and artefacts featured in the book will be probably instantly recognisable to readers. So, you know, we've got things like Magna Carta, we've got the Declaration of Independence, the Diary of Anne Frank, which we mentioned. Um, can you perhaps tell us about some documents that are we less well-known, um, but maybe should be household names? One wonderful cynical example is the, the little bit of paper. Uh, the, the scene is is autumn 1944, and Winston Churchill is sitting at a table with Joe Stalin, and well, they're sitting around this table, and uh, they're talking about the future of Europe after 1945 victory, which is about to come. They all know it's going to be victory eventually, not quite sure when. And so Churchill scribbles down the piece of paper what he thinks Russia and the West should do about countries like Romania, Bulgaria, and Greece, uh, and Churchill scribbles down, uh, just literally, he puts down Greece, 90% us and 10% you, meaning the Russians. And then Romania, you know, 50%, uh, 50%, whatever it is. He scribbles down what, how the, the West and Russia should share these countries. Unbelievable cynical stuff. Uh, and, uh, and Churchill himself wrote in his, in his, he had, Stalin gave a little tick because he rather approved of all this. In fact, Churchill ended up with far less than he asked for. But... The lovely thing about this is that Churchill wrote in his 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 war memoirs afterwards. It wasn't as a bit naughty of us to be exchanging these this naughty letter he called it. But didn't Stalin also say 
I suppose you want to destroy this piece of paper. And yeah. Churchill said, no, I'm going to keep yeah. it. That's right. Stalin said, I think you want to burn this thing. And Churchill said, no, no, history, history, dear boy. And so, I mean, you know, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I, I was because I was actually looking at that one just this morning and just the sheer brevity of it and how it's almost like a shop. It's almost like a shopping list. It's like, go get the, go get the milk, go get the apples. It's so short and it's just it's got such massive significance. Massive. And one country he left off, Churchill, for example, is Poland. He left Poland off and, of course, to his huge discredit, really, because uh, he should have said, because the Poles were known to be likely to want uh, independent, free to free democracy. And they'd but fought, they didn't get it. But also, Polish pilots had fought with the and RAF. Polish pilots had fought so bravely with the RAF and so on. Uh, and 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 wasn't included in Churchill's Churchill's offer, as it were, uh, which he pushed across the table. I'm sure all football fans will know about this document, but I didn't until I I wrote about it. The football, um, the football rules of uh, 1863, and um, it's 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 called a football association minute book is the document that we chose. And it's just uh, about, it's a book, really nondescript looking little book that is full of notes about meetings that took place to try to standardize the rules of football. Because in the um, 1800s, there was a real push to try to make one set of rules for football because each team that played had different rules to play by. And so the final sort of meetings to decide this took place at a pub, a tavern in London called the Freemasons Tavern in uh, October 1863. And 12 men from different football clubs around London all sat down, including the leader of them, a man called Ebenezer Morley, who uh, came from Barnes, where we live. And actually, we walked past his gravestone in the on Barnes Common every time we go for a walk. So it's again, didn't know about this man, but here he is in our life. You don't meet many people called Ebenezer these days. <laughs> but anyway, it, in the end, they, they came up with um, 13 rules. And one of the groups in the, in the discussion called uh, from Blackheath Football Club was against um, some, he wanted a couple of more extra rules, including running with the ball and also something called hacking, which means you can kick your opponents. And the other 11 said, no, 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 we don't want any any roughhouse. So Mr. Blackheath Football Club representative walked out of the meeting and started his own club. And he started the Rugby Football Union. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply
Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, A few years ago, a librarian in France was going through a pile of English books and found a a, a first folio, one of the original uh, folios. And most recently, in 2016, Mount Stuart House in Scotland, remember, it was completely renovated. And they found a a first folio there. So more of those may still still appear, which is very exciting. Do you think with the advent of the internet and the ability to view uh, any of these documents or items, you know, you can just, you can Google a lot of them and see pictures. Um, we've lost a bit of the magic of actually going and seeing them in person and getting that real, you know, the real impact of seeing it in its physical presence. Do you think that that's a problem or is it also helping opening up history to a much wider audience? I think it's it's wonderful. It's opening up history. We certainly use the internet to look at these pictures ourselves and get uh, related information. It was really wonderful. But we also went and looked at a lot of the, the ones we could look at, um, nearby documents. And there is something so magical about seeing the original. As Peter said, um, the Rosetta Stone, for example, in um, in at, at the British Museum is beautiful. And as Peter said, the Book of Kells in Dublin are just there's nothing like looking at the original handwriting of these monks so many years ago. You don't get that feeling on the internet, but I think the internet plays an incredibly important role in um, making people interested in these subjects. And hopefully if they read about these things in our book, they will make an effort if they're in Paris to go and look at Hammurabi's stele at the Louvre, or if they're you know, in the US, they'll go and look at the um, US Declaration of Independence. I really hope that will inspire people. But talking of the Rosetta, I mean, one of the most... In fact, I challenge your listeners to go and have a look. When you go to the British Museum, look at the Rosetta Stone. Um, it's terribly difficult to see, but if you look on the Rosetta Stone, which you can only really, really see if you see it actually in, in, in itself at the museum, at the top, the top is the hieroglyphic, the Egyptian hieroglyphics, which were then translated by all these wonderful, brilliant chaps, uh, British and French, Champollion, and so on into uh, into 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 French and English. Um, when you look at the top, the bottom line of the hieroglyphics at the top of the stone, you'll see one little, few little hieroglyphics with a cartouche around them, a little a little oval line around them, and that's the that's the that's the the name of Ptolemy V, to whom this stone was written. And that, that's absolutely fascinating, very exciting. All this sort of thing is so exciting when you see the actual document. You're quite right. It's not quite the same on the internet. But of course, it's very valuable having it, isn't it? Yeah, especially more than ever. Obviously, when at the moment, we're all a lot of people stuck in their houses and not able to get out as much. So I've been doing a lot of those virtual exhibitions recently. Um, I was also just thinking, so I, the Mona Lisa, um, it's not something mentioned in your book, although you do have Leonardo da Vinci's codices. I remember, because I'd obviously seen the Mona Lisa in print and online so many times. And the moment when I actually saw it in real life, I was like, 
my goodness, this is such a small painting. I, I had like this vision of this huge sort of two meter canvas um, and I saw it in real life and it was tiny and I had to stand really far back because there was a huge crowd in front of me. Um, and it was quite a, a, it was a great moment because it'd been something I'd wanted to see for so long, but it was also quite interesting how the reality matched up to the sort of idea in my head. Well, talking about Leonardo, I mean, his mm -hmm. notebooks, are fascinating. You can, see, you can see them very easily online. The Louvre, for example, has put one of their books of codices completely online. And they're fascinating to look at. But to actually go to the Buckingham Palace, the, the Royal Collection um, exhibition, uh, it was just extraordinary to see his delicate little drawings and his weird writing, because he, so he wrote something called mirror writing, which is from left to right. They're not quite sure why, but he, they, the experts think that probably because he was left-handed. Um, he yeah. was extraordinary because as well as doing the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper, those things that we really know all about from Leonardo, he also was an absolutely nonstop note taker. He used to walk around with little bits of paper in his pocket and he'd take them out. Every time he had a thought, he'd take it and, and scroll it down. Or if he saw something interesting, he'd write it down. And for example, the Mona Lisa has that extraordinary smile. And in, if you look at Leonardo's codices, if you look at his Write, draw, uh, writings, you see that he studies the mouth and the smile. And that's one of, and you know, presumably he used his studies of the mouth and the smile to actually paint Mona Lisa. But I was just fascinated by him. And again, when you talk about missing documents, I think something like 20% of the hundreds and thousands of bits of paper that Leonardo jotted his thoughts and, and drawings on have been found. And they're all in museums except for one. And guess where that is? Bill Gates owns it. And he uses some of the pictures that Leonardo drew in his particular, the papers that have been assembled into Bill Gates's book. He uses them as uh, uh, screensavers on his Microsoft products. Mm. But I just love Leonardo because he is one of those guys who is just, he was so fascinated by everything. And in fact, because he was so interested in making notes and drawing war machines and uh, drawing human bodies, he was one of the first people to ever draw a baby in, in utero, in, in um, utero, utero, in a baby in the mother's stomach. He also um, for, was the first to uh, define ar arthio, ar arteriosclerosis and, and cirrhosis of the liver. He was just fascinating, and that's why he didn't do many paintings because he was so busy in all his other projects that uh, they, his painting suffered. And it's those paintings that we perhaps know him best for and, that you know, people should actually go out and look at this other side to him as well, um, the sort of the scientific curiosity. Um, so I was wondering, we've obviously, we've covered quite a few documents already and I asked you which document you think was had the biggest impact on history. But I was wondering if you could both maybe take me through three, three documents you know, your three top documents that we haven't discussed already. Sorry, that's putting you a bit on the spot. The, the lovely thing about this book, by the way, is that the documents are very clearly printed on one side of the page. And then you have another page full of wonderful pictures of the people who published the documents and the statues or whatever that's associated with them. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a picture book as much as an explainer of what the documents are all about. Anyway, yes, I mean, for example, <laughs> great fun. Um, the uh, Beatles 
Uh, I mean, Anne knows much more about this because she studied it in great detail. But the, 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 uh, it was Brian Epstein, wasn't it? Yeah. Who, who, who scribbled down on a piece of paper. Was it a cigarette packet? No, no, it was a letter. A letter. He scribbled an envelope, down on, an envelope. Uh, on an envelope. He scribbled down the back of an envelope um, his plan for the Beatles' tour of America, which he sort of dreamed of. When the Beatles weren't just being discovered, 63? Well, this, he, did, he did it in, it was, the tour was in 64. Six, Their first was, North American tour. He did tour. it in 63 for the tour in 64. And he, it was his dream of where the Beatles would like to go. And sort of Philadelphia, you know, April, and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it, that's, a, that's a wonderful, it's a, it is a document. It, it's a piece of paper on which something is written that changed history. That tour of the States the Beatles did was fantastic. In the summer of 64, they, they um, staged 32 concerts in 33 <laughs> days, right across the United States and Canada. It was extraordinary. Another wonderful example is a thing that I discovered, which is a map drawn by an extraordinary chap, in um, an astronomer in Hawaii, of what he thought the, the, the universe actually looked like. And he... <laughs> This is 21st century. This is our, our most modern yeah, This document. is the most modern document we've got. And I had a chat with the guy, and he said, yes, 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 very exciting. Of course, I cannot be absolutely sure of where this particular galaxy is or that particular group of galaxies. They had these, what they call these clusters of galaxies. And within each galaxy, you have billions of stars. I mean, we you know, on the Earth, on our little planet, we're one of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And the nearest galaxy to us is the Andromeda galaxy, which is six trillion miles away. Sorry, correction, it's two, two, two and a half times that. It's, uh, it's two and a half light years, that's one light year. It's actually 18, 22 trillion miles away, this uh, Andromeda galaxy. Uh, and, uh, and that is the nearest one of the billions of galaxies in the universe. And this wonderful map sort of shows you, gives you some idea of what it's like. I, that's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful document there. One that's very dear to my heart because I'm Canadian is the British North America Act of 1867, which created the country of Canada. And I found it in the uh, parliamentary ar archives at the Palace of Westminster. And it's tucked away between the uh, Metropolitan Poor Act and the Dog Licenses Act. And it's, it's, a, it's a long scroll, neatly rolled up with a red ribbon around it. And it created the country where I grew up and uh, am still a citizen of. So that was very exciting for me. Wonderful. Then talking of science, I mean, one wonderful scientific moment was when that wonderful chap everybody worships, Brunel, the great engineer, the British engineer, who built the Great Britain in 1840. And the thing you will notice, as if you didn't notice already, about the Great Britain, it has a propeller, not a paddle. In those days, paddles were the things you tended to put on the side of ships to get them moving. But we got this letter, this one of our documents, is the letter Brunel wrote when he realised that actually the paddle wheel he was going to put on the side of Great Britain was a mistake, because there would just been a test of a ship called the Archimedes, which is run with a propeller, and it was doing two knots faster, two miles an hour faster than a paddle wheel boat. And so he said, right, everybody, change ships, change, change, change engines. I'm going to scrap the thing we've got in Great Britain at the moment, the paddle wheel plan, and I'm going to put a propeller in her. He put the propeller in a huge cost, and the thing went uh, at 11 knots and not nine knots as he was planning. Tremendous moment in scientific history. And we've got this marvellous letter that tells you when he suddenly realised. Shall we tell Rachel about our Einstein problem? Oh, go on. Yes, Ooh, yes. <laughs> I'd love to hear about your Einstein problem. 
I, you know, in case, in case you wondered if we did this totally peacefully between us doing these <laughs> subjects, there was one moment of crisis. I chose to do Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, I have no scientific background. I read English at university, but I, I'm very curious and I, I love find, finding facts. So I thought I could do this. So I found it was really, really difficult. It's a very, very complicated scientific concept. And I did a lot of research. I did more research for Einstein than I did for anything else. I spent weeks trying to figure out exactly what the theory of relativity was. And finally, I thought I'd cracked it. So I wrote away and I got my, my 800 words and I handed them to Peter, very proud of myself. There was a long silence as he read it. And then he turned to me and he said, I don't understand a single word. True. <laughs> That's amazing. We decided to send it to someone who actually knows about Einstein's theory of relativity, a physicist who had got a first from Oxford. And I waited, shaking in my chair for his reply. And I was so pleased when it came because he said, for someone who hasn't studied physics, this is a most admirable attempt. Very good. So and Peter, and Peter had to eat his words. I struggled to understand it. I got there in the end. Were there any any? Um, you said it was it was incredibly difficult narrowing down your choices for the book. Were there any? And we've spoken a little bit about um, documents that are perhaps missing from history. So, what documents um, almost were included but didn't quite make the final cut that might be worth a little shout out just now? Oh my goodness me! Yes. Well, <laughs> well, we only have one author, Shakespeare, in our in our book, Shakespeare's uh, first folio, which is a fascinating story. But I will let you read the book and find out about that. Um, but we did think about maybe including, you know, a German writer or a French writer, Balzac or something, but we decided probably one writer was enough. So, and Shakespeare is so universal that we, we opted for him and in science too. I mean, we, you know, we've, we've done DNA, we've done Einstein, we've done Copernicus, we've done Brunel, but there are just so many, and, and we've done the World Wide web, but there are so many fascinating scientific, um, discoveries that we just wanted to include but just didn't have the space. Then of course we had we, we were determined to include something that we include, all the arts were we've included, but we particularly wanted to include a bit of music. So we thought, well now what on earth are we going to put down? What score shall we slot in here that describes a huge a huge moment in musical history? Of course it's, it, you don't have to look very far with the first bar of Beethoven's fifth ba 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 bum <laughs> terrific moment. Viva victory, of course, after that. The whole, all the implications of that 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 has conjured up of hyper's use in the Second World War and so on. That was one I read this morning as well. Um, and there was so much I didn't know about. I've heard that piece of music so many times in films, on TV. I didn't know any of the context of it. Um, you know, the context of what was going on at the time with Napoleon. And yeah, it was really fascinating. So this is a piece of music that I'm so familiar with, but I don't know the context behind it at all. And that was really, really interesting to learn about for me. But, but one thing that tickled us was, was uh, we thought, my goodness, the Apollo 11, the, the trip to the moon, we've got to choose something, that some document that, 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 that uh, sets in historical context, the wonder of that, that extraordinary moment. I mean, you know, here we are, 50 years later, we still haven't got to the moon again. Anyway, so we thought, well, what are we going to do? And we looked very hard at all the documentary it evidence. It was really boring, the, the actual official <laughs> yes, report. Yes, right, the, you know, the, 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 the long statement summary of what, what happened. And then we discovered one little, little picture, which was a graphic of the heartbeat of Armstrong's, Armstrong's heartbeat as he brought the lunar lander down onto the moon's surface. 
And that heartbeat, which is normally, what, about 60, 70, whatever your, your mind is normally, it's about 60 or 70 most of the time, it went up to 140 just a few seconds before he touched down. And we thought, that's the, that's the, that's the document that we need. That says it all. <laughs> that says it all. Yeah, that's telling a story in itself, isn't it? Um, so uh, women in the book. So we've spoken a little bit about suffrage. Um, what other remarkable documents do we have related to some remarkable women in history? Well, we have Mary Wollstonecraft, who uh, in the 18th century wrote um, a book called A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And this was the first time any serious person had written a book which argued that females were rational beings and they were entitled to be treated in the same way as men. Now, this, of course, caused an absolute sort of uh, scandal not least because she had rather a scandalous life, which you will read about. But uh, she was she was great. She um she said you know she was determined that females should take control of their lives through education, that men should stop treating them like some sort of what she called toys or spaniels in a gilt cage. And she she argued very very um, succinctly in in this book that men and women are equal in the eyes of God. So they should be subject to the same moral code. So this was a really important book. The trouble was that she was rather a um, a rather odd woman in those days because she had affairs. She had an illegitimate child. She tried to commit suicide. She had a very, very, very uh, interesting private life, which nowadays would probably be celebrated, but then was looked down on. Mm-hmm. And she eventually um, did get married, even though she didn't believe in marriage. And she had a baby called Mary. And she died shortly after the baby was born. After she died, her husband wrote a, a, a no-hold-bars book about her and talked about the abortion and the affairs and the suicide attempts. And she was then, her, her memory was absolutely, uh, you know, what a terrible woman. We will not read this book, even though the book at the time had, had been reasonably well-received. Um, so it basically, nobody read it for about 100 years. And it wasn't until women started... Um, campaigning to get the vote in the the 1900s, about 100 years after poor old Mary had died, that her book once again was taken seriously. So she really, in a way, is the mother, mother of feminism. Before we exhaust all of the items and documents in your book, um, perhaps both of you, do you want to just pick one final more document to tell our listeners about before we before we finish up the podcast today? Well, yes, okay. I think people should turn to page 108 when they buy the book. They won't want real excitement, particularly if they're American, because that is the page on which you will find the letter, not the letter, the poem in the handwriting of Francis Scott Key, where he writes down a poem. And, and people, very few Americans actually, I think, know this, that it was written, this poem, when Francis Scott Key was watching the British besieging Baltimore in 1814. And it's the British, it's the British besiege of Baltimore that really prompted the writing of the American National Anthem. It's fascinating. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light. And it was Francis Scott Key standing on the side of this boat with a bit of paper in his hands and a pencil. And he was describing his astonishment to see the American flag still flying over Fort McHenry, which the British had failed to suppress with their rockets and flares and, and bombs and goodness knows what they were firing at it. And Francis Scott Key saw this 
and he wrote down the poem admiring the fact that the Star Spangled Banner was still flying over this fort. And I think it's a wonderful moment. And that letter written, just scribbled out on the back of a, on a piece of paper. It wasn't the back of an envelope. It was a piece of paper he had in his pocket. And he wrote this out, and that's the American National Anthem. I think that's a wonderful moment. Well, I would go to page 80 and look at Shakespeare's first folio, because this is another fabulous story. Um, it includes all of his 36 plays. Now, 18 of these plays would have been lost forever. Plays like Julius Caesar, Macbeth, As You Like It, Twelfth Night, had it not been for after Shakespeare died in uh, uh, 1616, two of his former um, acting uh, colleagues, John Hemming and uh, Henry Condell, decided they had to amass some sort of record of all of Shakespeare's work. 16 of his plays had already been published, so they put those in the book, and then they had to find some sort of copies of the other 16. And so they did that. They went around, they talked to other actors, they talked to, they went through various notes, they went through stage directions, they went through all sorts of uh, copies of uh, his plays that he had written and, and left, you know, with, uh, with various people. They had to be very careful because there were an awful lot of pirated copies of Shakespeare's plays floating around, people who had been to his play and then written their own version of it and taken it off to have their acting company perform it. There was a great competition in those days. Anyway, they managed to do this. They got it printed. It took two years. It's, um, I forget how many pages. It's a great many number of pages, but it's all there. 900 pages, I think. It's all there. And these were published in wonderful book called A Folio. And nobody knows quite how many uh, folios were actually published, but there is, uh, there, we know now that there are, about 235 in existence, and they're still being discovered. Um, a few years ago, a librarian in France was going through a pile of English books and found a, a, a first folio, one of the original uh, folios. And wow. mo most recently, in 2016, Mount Stuart House in Scotland, remember, it was completely renovated, and they found a, a first folio there. So more of those may still, be, still appear, which is very exciting. And that's quite an exciting prospect that there are still many other treasures of the world that are out there yet to be discovered. And on that note, that is all we've got time for today. But so just wanted to say thank you so much, Peter and Anne, for coming on our podcast. It's been a pleasure. Nice to talk to you, thank Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. That was Peter Snow and Anne McMillan. Their book, Treasures of World History, The Story of Civilization in 50 Documents, was published on the 6th of August by Welbeck Publishing Group. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again tomorrow for another lecture from our History Weekend events. <laughs>